Hi listeners, this is Pete Romand from the Enemy Within podcast on Contour Radio. Today, we're bringing you a lecture by arguably the best-known public intellectual on the face of the planet, Noam Chomsky. At the end of last year, in November, Contour was involved in helping to support a lecture organised by our friends at the Havens Right Centre for Social Justice in the US. In this talk, titled The Final Question, Noam presents a sweeping analysis of the long-term prospects for humanity as a species. He discusses the likelihood of ecological collapse and nuclear war, and he evaluates how contemporary events should be factored into this long-range macro-analysis, from the Ukraine war to the economic malaise that is defining this moment in history. At the ripe old age of 93, his analysis is as searing and insightful as ever. With that, I'll hand you over to Professor Chomsky. Let me begin with a few words about the enigmatic title that I suggested. Humans are a recent arrival on Earth, a few hundred thousand years. It's an eye blink in evolutionary time. They're a singular creature with fundamental characteristics that are unique, most strikingly the capacities we're now using, the capacities for language and thought closely interlinked, if not identical. These capacities yield the ability to pose questions, sometimes to answer them, of course, alone in the organic world. The questions vary in significance. One question stands alone. Will humans decide to carry forward the human experiment, or will they choose to bring it to an inglorious end? That question was posed with dramatic clarity 77 years ago with the atomic bombings. They remember very well. These events and the reaction to them revealed that there is an enormous gap between our technical capacity to destroy and our moral capacity to control this impulse. The question that's posed then is whether the gap is unbridgeable. If it is, that's the final question of such significance that humans will pose. It's the reason for the question mark in the title of these remarks. That question was raised implicitly a few years after the atomic bombing by the distinguished astrophysicist Enrico Fermi. Put simply, his question is, where are they? Fermi recognized that within the accessible universe, there are innumerable planets that should be able to sustain intelligent life that's advanced enough to have contacted Earth, but no trace of them had been found. That's Fermi's paradox, as it's been called. Seventy years later, after total failure, of very extensive efforts to find some indication of their existence, 
the paradox has greatly deepened. Various answers to the paradox have been proposed. One apocryphal story has it that John von Neumann responded at once by saying that any advanced civilization would have developed nuclear energy and destroyed itself by uncontrolled radiation. It's worth some thought. Another idea is that it's an inherent property of higher intelligence, that there's a gap between the technological capacity to destroy and the moral capacity to control this impulse, a gap that is unbridgeable. Well, the existence of the gap in our case is evident. We are now engaged in an experiment to test the thesis, whether it's unbridgeable. If we give the wrong answer, we're doomed. Perhaps not tomorrow, that's not a remote prospect, but in the not distant future and the decline from irreversible tipping points, some of which we're now approaching, that decline will be so grim that few would want even to endure the experience. I'm, of course, referring to the two primary threats to the survival of organized human life on Earth, not to speak of the many other species that we're wantonly destroying in our madness. The two, of course, are nuclear war and global warming. Torrent commentary has descended so far in quality that it's now treating nuclear war as an option to be considered, and policies are being designed and pursued that make it more likely. Come back to that, but first let's talk about heating the earth and our reaction. Let's begin with the global center of production of the poisons that threaten survival. Eastern Mediterranean, Middle East region. Recent scientific studies have found that earlier estimates of the effects of global heating in the Eastern Mediterranean had badly underestimated the impact. New research shows that on our present course, by the end of the century, average temperatures will have risen by 5 degrees Celsius, almost 10 degrees Fahrenheit, and the sea level will be 2 to 2.5 two meters higher than today. I leave the rest to your imagination. Well, the next question is, how are the potential victims reacting to these very clear warnings from their own scientists, top scientists, and the international scientific community? Answer is by totally ignoring them. They're competing to see who will have the honor of administering the coup de grace. That's actually the precise meaning of the recent Israel-Lebanon agreements over who will have the right to exploit the fossil fuel reserves at their maritime border. The successful 
outcome of the negotiations was hailed with enthusiasm at home and by international commentary, delighted at this latest illustration of our dedication to self-destruction. A conflict is brewing in Cyprus, might explode into a major war. In the background are concerns about who will lead the way in destroying the environment that sustains life by exploiting the fossil fuel reserves of the Eastern Mediterranean and supervising pipelines to accelerate the disaster. Will Greece have the honor or will Turkey? Little further away, India and Pakistan are devoting scarce resources to a likely war that will destroy both of them. One source of likely conflict is the melting of the glaciers that serve as major water resources for both. Meanwhile, as you've been reading, a third of Pakistan is under several meters of water from unprecedented monsoon rains, while in nearby North India, poor peasants seek to survive temperatures reaching close to 50 degrees Celsius. And this, of course, is not the ceiling. It's only the current stage of our folly. A few days ago, the World Meteorological Organization released a study of the trajectory that we are now pursuing. It reported, unsurprisingly, that last year, greenhouse gas levels hit new highs. Looking back, it reported that between the and 2021, the warming effect on our climate by long-lived greenhouse gases rose by nearly 50%, with carbon dioxide accounting for 80% of that increase, uh, quoting their report. The anticipated trajectory, very clear. There's also some good news. The International Energy Association, a couple of days ago, reaffirmed its message that the means to prevent catastrophe and to move on to a better world are available and feasible if we can close the gap in time. And it added that countries of the world are not coming close to that, but they're available and feasible. We should not forget the WMO review that I mentioned began with 1990 because that was the initiation of the process that led to the Kyoto Protocol. It was the first international treaty to control the plague. It was signed by all states with only two holdouts, Andorra and the United States. Though Canada, which is always in Washington's shadow, has since withdrawn. 1990 is significant in another respect. That's when the basic information about the dread consequences of global heating, long been known in the scientific world, by 1990 they'd reached the general public. 
the critical event was widely publicized testimony on the coming catastrophe by James Hansen. Well, the corporate sector heard the message, reacted at once. To them, Hansen's testimony was not news. In fact, their own scientists had been in the forefront in identifying and warning about the threat. But their work and warnings had been filed away as annoying company secrets. After Hansen's testimony in 1988, secrecy was no longer possible. The public relations specialists of the companies were called into action. They recommended that the companies should not deny the facts because they would be quickly refuted. Rather, they should sow doubts. Maybe we've not yet understood the effects of sunspots or maybe cloud cover or something else. So let's be reasonable and wait. Meanwhile, growing our economies by rapid use of fossil fuels so that we'll be able to confront the problems if they're real as a much richer society. Yet meanwhile, subtext not spoken while we're raking in huge profits. That worked very well with the consequences just reviewed by the World Meteorological Organization. Well, that episodes illuminates another respect in which higher intelligence tends to make the grim gap unbridgeable. Over the centuries, we've constructed institutional structures designed to lead the species suicide in the interest of short-term gain for the masters. Well, it's not a novel insight. 250 years ago, Adam Smith observed that those he called the masters of mankind, he was referring to the merchants and manufacturers of England, they, he said, are the principal architects of government policy, and they make sure that their own interests are most peculiarly attended to. No matter how grievous the effect on others, including the people of England, though more so the victims of the savage injustice of the Europeans abroad. In all ages, Smith warned, if operating without public constraints, the masters will relentlessly pursue their vile maxim, all for ourselves, nothing for anyone else. That was 250 years ago. It's about as good a reformulation of international relations policy or theory and uh, domestic institutions as I know of. To assure that the trajectory outlined by the World Meteorological Organization continues, the U.S. is opening up new fields for exploration along with others laying new pipelines. That means decades more of fossil fuel extraction. 
the euphoria in the fossil fuel industry in their headquarters is just unconstrained. It's buoyed not only by stellar prospects for the march to the precipice, but also by profits beyond the dreams of avarice. Last week, Exxon posted the highest profit in its 150-year history as natural gas demand and prices surged. Chevron also blew past estimates to post their second highest profit ever with net income for the quarter at 11 billion. Saudi Arabia enjoyed double those profits in the last quarter. Others among the masters are not lagging behind. Military production is skyrocketing profits as well. The new, the few, there's a couple of mega corporations that dominate food production. They're recording record-breaking profits thanks to the hunger that's stalking the world. Pursuit of the vile maxim is relentless. There's much focus of attention on inflation, probably swing the election. Careful studies show that about 40% of it is due to bloated profits, setting profits far beyond any, anything this economy requires, but possible in, all, in basically oligarchic markets. Jerome Powell yesterday gave his first press conference about the Federal Reserve proposals for dealing with inflation. All of the proposals focus on increasing unemployment. Technically, it's called raising the interest rate, but that means increasing unemployment. The press was there. There was not a single question about the bloated profits that account for 40% of the, of the inflation. Tells us something more about the institutions we've created. That'll probably swing the election that's coming. It's highly instructive to look closely at details. Individual cases yield much insight into the biomaxim and the institutional imperatives that lie behind it. All of this has to be understood. And we're all under control, not ended. If there's to be any hope of closing the grim gap, so let's take the climate bill that was just passed. Uh, it's a hell shadow of what was proposed by the Biden administration, which wasn't bad under the impact of popular climate activism. Well, as you've watched, step by step, it was cut back. Republicans are 100% opposed to anything that might impede pursuit of the vile maxim by their ultra-rich and corporate backers. With the crucial help of a couple of right-wing Democrats, they achieved their goals. The popular organizations dedicated to preserving viable life on Earth couldn't compete with the power of the true masters in the corporate sector. There are lessons there. The final 
shadow is not meaningless. It is, however, radically insufficient in its reach, and it's also burdened with measures to ensure that the interests of the masters are most peculiarly attended to, borrow Adam Smith's rhetoric. The bill that the masters were willing to accept, I'm now quoting the Washington Post, uh, the bill that the masters were willing to accept includes vast government subsidies that are already driving forward large oil and gas projects that threaten a heavy carbon footprint with companies, including ExxonMobil and others, positioned for big payouts. One device to satisfy the needs of the masters is, still quoting, a vast wad of money for carbon capture. Carbon capture, my comment, is a phrase that means let's keep poisoning the atmosphere freely and maybe someday someone will figure out a way to remove some of the poisons. Well, actually, that's all too kind. Let me continue with the post story. The irony of carbon capture is that the place it has proven most successful is getting more oil out of the ground. All but one major project built in the United States is geared toward fossil fuel companies taking the trapped carbon and injecting it into underground wells in order to extract more crude oil. Actually, the actual cases would be comical if the consequences were not so grave. So the subs I'm quoting again, the subsidies give companies lucrative incentives to drill for gas in the most climate unfriendly sites where the concentration of CO2 in the fuel is so high that they can't use it. The CO2 is useless for making fuel, but the track tax credits are awarded based on how many tons of it the companies trap. So in other words, go to areas which are so rich in poison that you can't get oil and drill there so you can get CO2 for which you can get tax credits for carbon capture. And then you can go on to drill as much oil as you want. That's our institutions, private and government, closely linked, just as Adam Smith said. Well, other cases illustrate the same priorities. So Arctic permafrost contains huge amounts of carbon. It's beginning to melt as the Arctic heats much faster than the rest of the world. Well, scientists at one oil major, ConocoPhillips, discovered a way to slow the thaw thawing of the permafrost. To what end? To keep it solid enough to drill for oil, the burning of which will continue to worsen ice melt. Quoting from a report in the back pages of the New York Times. Corporate lobbyists are even pressing states to punish corporations by withdrawing pension funds and other means if they dare even to provide information 
on environmental impacts of their policies. No stone is left unturned. Every opportunity to destroy must be exploited, no matter how slight. Following Karl Marx's script of capitalism going berserk. It's not really surprising that once Reagan and Thatcher removed all constraints and launched the current era of savage class war, that's the reality behind the cynical rhetoric of markets and liberty, savage class war. Once constraints were removed, the master sought every opportunity to pursue their vile maxim. As Smith advised us 250 years ago, it's the basic source of the social disorder that is leading to the plagues that may end whatever remains of functioning democracy. These institutional structures are one product of higher intelligence takes diverse forms, but it's all within the framework of the general state capitalism that has prevailed everywhere in the world for the past century. There's been progress in constraining their worst excesses, but it's not constant. In the past 40 years, there's been serious regression. We even have general measures of the success of the savage class war that's misleadingly called neoliberalism. In the United States, of course, the leader of the pack by virtue of its enormous power, in the US, almost $50 trillion has been transferred from the population to the pockets of the top 1% during the 40 years since Reagan opened the door to unconstrained class war. $50 trillion of robbery of the public by the top 1%. It's not a small success. Well, in the traditional domains of savage European injustice, it's been even worse. The structural adjustment programs that were a core part of the neoliberal package imposed two decades of stagnation on Latin America, and they tore apart the fragile social order elsewhere. Two striking cases are the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, where harsh substructural adjustment programs shredded the society, helped lay the groundwork for the terrible crimes that ensued. Well, can this be reversed? In principle, yes. We know how, just as we know how the climate crisis can be contained by available measures that will make it possible to move on to a better world. But knowing the answers is not enough. The grim question remains, is the gap unbridgeable between what we know how to do our capacity to implement that knowledge for the common good. Well, let's turn to the second of the threats to survival. This one imminent, not lingering in mounting horror like the climate crisis, referring, of course, to nuclear war. 
It's with regard to nuclear war that the grim question of the unbridgeable gap was posed in stark and unforgettable terms in August 1945. That made it clear that human technical competence had risen, perhaps descended, to the level where it could destroy life on Earth. Actually, not quite yet. The bombs were still too small. But it was clear then that technology would move on to the capacity to destroy everything. And it did in 1952, when the United States and the Soviet Union exploded thermonuclear weapons. At that point, the hands of the famous doomsday clock were advanced to two minutes to midnight. Midnight meaning termination of the human experiment. The hands have oscillated since, varying with assessments of the global security situation. They did not reach two minutes again until Trump's term in office. In his last years, the analysts abandoned minutes and moved to seconds, 100 seconds to midnight. It's where the hands now stand. They'll be reset in a few months, and they should be moved still closer to midnight. The nature of the threat of total destruction is stated clearly in the official strategic posture of the United States. Under Trump, 2018, it was shifted from focus on terrorism to peer competition, the need to prevail in two nuclear wars with China and Russia. That would seem to be a fair definition of clinical insanity. A war with either would be the end, but we have since moved beyond. The Biden administration adopted this policy, but expanded it. Official policy, quoting the official words, is to encircle China with a ring of sentinel states heavily armed with precision weapons aimed at China, backed with major naval maneuvers in the Pacific. It's RIMPAC, it's called. The threat a couple of days ago was extended by the decision to station nuclear-capable B-52s in northern Australia. The U.S.-run NATO alliance in its recent summit expanded the North Atlantic to the Indo-Pacific region, meaning that its reach is worldwide. The U.S. insists on the right of transit of U.S. naval vessels in the exclusive economic zones that are granted to China by the law of the sea, which the U.S. alone has not ratified among maritime powers. The justification is defense of the right of free passage. There hasn't been the slightest threat to free passage. What's at stake is a technical dispute about an unclear phrase in the law of the sea. The United States claims that it permits military vessels to pass through the zones. China disagrees. China is backed by India, Indonesia, and others. Plainly, a topic for 
negotiations, but we have to use the serious threat of force, our style. The most crucial issue is Taiwan. Official policy set in the 1970s declares Taiwan to be part of China with what's called strategic ambiguity, meaning neither China nor the U.S. will disrupt this arrangement by force. That actually agreement has kept the peace for 50 years, which is not a bad record in international affairs. There was a party congress in China, as you know, a couple of weeks ago, policy was reaffirmed. President Xi declared the matter moot until 2049. It's the anniversary of Chinese independence. Well, neither side is blameless, but it's Washington that has recently been taking steps to undermine the fragile agreement of course, increasing the threat of terminal war. The encirclement policies I mentioned are one example. Another is House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's reckless visit to Taiwan, to which China responded by demonstrating its capacity to blockade Taiwan. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee then passed a Bipartisan Taiwan Policy Act, what it's called, declares Taiwan to be a non-NATO ally of the United States, calls for the same diplomatic status as any other country, along with enhanced flow of arms, U.S. arms, and integration with U.S. military forces with interoperability of weapons. It's a serious threat to the strategic ambiguity that has kept the peace. Those of you who've been following the background to the Russian invasion of Ukraine will recognize that these were the same policies with regard to Ukraine that U.S. has been following for a decade, uh, increasing under Biden up to the time of the invasion. Well, Biden moved further with a virtual declaration of war. I'll quote the London Financial Times. Joe Biden this month launched a full-blown economic war on China, all but committing the U.S. to stopping its rise. History is likely to record Biden's move as the moment when U.S.-China rivalry came out of the closet America is now pledged to do everything short of fighting an actual war to stop China's rise. The U.S. is now committed to blocking China in all kinds of civilian technologies. New York Times editors affirmed their support of the policies. They described it, quoting, a new policy, a new U.S. policy of actively strangling large segments of the Chinese technology industry, strangling with an intent to kill. The regulations apply to any company in the world that uses American semiconductor technology. That's almost everyone. So if a non-American chip manufacturer agrees to make Chinese-designed chips, it could lose access 
to American chip-making machines that it can't get anywhere else. The U.S. is seeking to ensure that China has no access to the advanced components necessary to run a modern economy. And like U.S. sanctions, everyone must obey these U.S. decrees, whether they like them or not, for fear of severe retribution from the global hegemon. Nobody else can undo this, but the U.S. does it all the time, routinely. That's going to be very costly to companies from the Netherlands to South Korea, much as the sanctions against Russia severely harm Western Europe. They don't touch the United States. Whatever one thinks of this wide range of strategic and economic policies, there's no doubt that they provide reasons to move the hands of the doomsday clock closer to midnight. Well, it gets worse. A couple of days ago, the Biden administration announced a new nuclear policy, which the Arms Control Association describes as a significant expansion of the original mission of these weapons, namely deterring in existential threats against the United States. This significant expansion was spelled out in congressional testimony by Admiral Charles Richard, the head of the U.S. Strategic Command, STRATCOM, charged of nuclear policy. Under the new policy, nuclear weapons provide what he called the maneuver space necessary for the United States to project conventional military power strategically. That means nuclear deterrence is a cover for conventional military operations around the globe, deterring others from interfering with U.S. conventional military operations, which are taking place everywhere. Nuclear weapons, quoting Admiral Richard, deter all countries all the time from interfering with U.S. actions. The press described this as not much of a change. Actually, they're right, but for reasons of which they're surely unaware. Stratcom Commander Richard could have doubtless informed them, if they want to know, that this has been U.S. policy since 1995. That's when it was elaborated in a STRATCOM, very important STRATCOM document on what was called post-Cold War deterrence. This is Clinton. The U.S. declared its right of first strike even against non-nuclear states. The, the document says that nuclear weapons must be available because they cast a shadow over conventional use of force deterring others from interfering. The way Dan Ellsberg described it, nuclear weapons are constantly used, just as a gun is used in a robbery, even if it's not fired. Well, this Stratcom 1995 document goes on to call for the United States, I'm quoting, to project a national persona of irrational irrationality 
and vindictiveness, sorry, with some elements out of control that will frighten those who might have thoughts of interfering. All of this is within the framework of the overarching document, Clinton Doctrine, that the U.S. must be ready to resort to force multilaterally, if we can, unilaterally, if we must, to ensure uninhibited access to key markets, energy supplies, and strategic resources. These are all quotes, official U.S. policy since Clinton. So it's true that the doctrine, current doctrine, is not very new, though Americans are almost entirely unaware of the facts, and not because of censorship, a very free country. The documents have been public for decades. They've been quoted in critical literature that's kept to the margins. Well, I haven't even mentioned the rising threat of nuclear war in Europe that's extensively discussed, though not with sufficient urgency. Brings us back to the grim question and the obstacles to giving the answer that we must give if it is not to be the final question raised in the brief sojourn of humans on the earth. One last comment. Suppose we're able to provide the desired answer to the question that will be no small achievement. But suppose we can manage to do it. What kind of global order can we expect to see right now that's a highly contested question? I'll keep to a couple of brief remarks, just touching on some primary issues which should be explored in more depth. The major current issue of global order is whether it will continue to be unipolar, dominated by the United States, or whether it will become a multipolar system with a number of centers of power that's reflected at the ideological level. The alternatives are reflected in the conflict between what's called a rules-based international order and a UN-based international order. The U.S. commentary, scholarship, and media uniformly accepts the rules-based international order. There's a reason which is never discussed, but it's not surprising. Who sets the rules in a rules-based international order? The United States. Who sets the rules in the UN-based international order? UN Charter, other international treaties. These all happen to rule out U.S. foreign policy. Just read Article 2 of the UN Charter, Foundation of Modern International Law. It bars the threat or use of force, except under circumstances which are irrelevant here. Every U.S. president violates that. Therefore, we can't have a U.N.-based international order. On the side, I might mention that every U.S. president accordingly violates the U.S. Constitution, which we are uh, instructed to worship as if it came from God. Article 6 determines that 
The UN Charter is the supreme law of the land to which elected officials must adhere, but put that aside. So we have to have a rules-based order, not a UN-based order. And that is uniform in scholarship and media, which tells us something else. Well, the role of Europe is central to these developments and debates. Throughout the Cold War, there have been conflicting visions of Europe's place in the global order. One is the so-called Atlanticist vision, NATO-based, holds that Europe should be subordinate to the U.S. Charles de Gaulle was the leading advocate of the, fact of the idea that Europe, in his words, from the Atlantic to the Urals, should be an independent third force in world affairs. There was some support for his position in really bronze Ostpolitik. As the Soviet Union collapsed, Mikhail Gorbachev proposed the idea of what he called a common European home from Lisbon to Vladivostok with no military alliances, common efforts to construct a social democratic future. The U.S. actually toyed briefly with similar ideas, but rejected them under Clinton in favor of expansion of NATO to the Russian border that was in violation of firm, unambiguous promises to Gorbachev when he agreed to unification of Germany within NATO, was also against the strong advice of virtually everyone in the higher levels of U.S. diplomacy who had any knowledge of Russia to use to the present. Well, Putin's criminal invasion of Ukraine settled that matter, at least in the short run, by driving Europe into the hands of the United States, providing Washington with a most welcome gift. Emmanuel Macron's about the closest approximation to a statesman in the modern world. He tried until the last minute to convince Putin to follow a different course, perhaps leading to something like Gorbachev's vision. Putin refused with contempt up to the last minute, but the matter's not ended. Europe is suffering severely from hanging on to Washington's coattails changes may be coming. Meanwhile, China is quietly expanding its huge loan and development program throughout Asia, reaching also to Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, tentatively to Europe. The U.S. is trying hard to prevent it from doing so. Uh, last comment. Global order is not confined to the great powers. The large majority of the world, the global south, also has been calling for a place at the table. That's marginalized in standard history, but it's been true since decolonization began after World War II. Many initiatives have been undertaken, among them the non-aligned movement, so G77, about 130 countries, 1970s, call for a new international 
Economic Order, New International Information Order, UNCTAD, within the UN system, BRICS, largely a Brazilian initiative, might be revived under Lula's leadership. It was he who initiated it. Most of these efforts have been beaten back partially, mainly by the United States, but they survive. And they're sure to find their place in any developing system of world order. That is, if a system of world order will develop at all. That's the grim question once again. I'll leave it with that.